Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Brooks Forsyth. Hey, everyone. Chris Ford. Eddie Hinkle. What's going on? I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Evan Weaver. Evan, hey. you want to say hi? I do. How's it going? It's going all right. We had you on JavaScript Jabber a while back, and I thought it might be interesting to talk about you know, the sort of uh, in-the-cloud, serverless, database kind of thing that you have set up at FaunaDB. So I'll put a link to that episode, but do you want to yeah, just give us a rundown of who you are, what your history is, and things like that? Yeah, Fauna is the database built for serverless. And according to you all, we are popular and growing fast in the JavaScript and Jamstack and React.js, GraphQL communities, that kind of thing. Nice. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So where are you seeing the most growth? Is it the React JS communities or is it is it other places or so we 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 typically see it in Jamstack right now. Mm-hmm. But th- these movements to me are all related. So we we've been building this product for for quite a while. The market made a big shift overall for us kind of the beginning of 2019 when people started building these apps for real and building fully dynamic applications in Jamstack and at the edge and with these modern JavaScript technologies in particular. And since then, that's become our focus in terms of um, our growth and our product development and our feature development and all that kind of thing. Very cool. So um, do you want to just give people a rundown on what Fauna is and where it came from? Yeah. Fauna is a global transactional database as a service. And the, the genesis of Fauna is really my experience and my co-founder's experience at Twitter. So I, I joined Twitter in 2008, ancient history now. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was employee 15. Oh, wow. And, uh, it, it, was, it, it was chaotic, to say the least. Um, I'd, I'd come from CNET. At CNET, I did Chow.com and Urban Baby. And I worked on Rails, which was you know the popular app framework at the mm-hmm. time. You probably... Many of you maybe have have not heard of it, but um, (laughs) there was a day when everything was being built in Rails, and so is Twitter. And our challenges at Twitter were pretty much, for me, exclusively around scalability. It was difficult to scale the site on the back of that that framework, on the back of MySQL, and these early technologies that weren't really designed for the hyperscale consumer internet. So I ended up running the backend engineering team there and we built out distributed storage systems for all the core business objects like tweets and timelines and users and that kind of thing. And we were also, we were very early in the NoSQL community. We looked at Mongo in the early days, but decided not to use it. We looked at Cassandra. We invested a lot in the Cassandra open source community, hosted the first meetup. I wrote the first tutorial. We fixed the build because it didn't compile. And we were kind of hoping that, you know, one of these technologies would grow into a 
global data platform that would let people build Twitters as a small team and, and ship them to the world without having to do the infrastructure re-architecture that we had to do. And basically, that's Fauna. When we, when we left Twitter, no one else had solved this problem yet. We spent three or four years as a consulting company and then moved into product development and started building the serverless database. How does it differ from um, like the Cassandra and, and Mongo and all these others that, that you mentioned? What, what makes Fauna different? So Fauna is a pure hosted, purely serverless solution. Our, our goal is to give you basically a global data API. You can start to see how this fits well you know, with the Angular universe and the, the JavaScript universe generally. Like the, these other systems are fundamentally systems built for operators. You, know, you have some existing infrastructure. You want to get some additional operational characteristics out of it, like more global replication in the case of Cassandra or more flexible data modeling in the case of Mongo. But at the end of the day, you're still you know, taking a DBA style attitude towards it and managing and provisioning and hosting it yourself. And we, we knew that, you know, you could build, you could build a platform that didn't mandate that, that didn't require you to do DevOps just to get something shipped to scale. We've seen that with other APIs now in other parts of the stack, like compute and hosting and that kind of thing, but we'd never seen it before data with, with, with Fauna. So I think the, the heart of the difference is really Fauna is not it's not a database to install and operate. It's, it's an API you interact with without having to think about the physical machine at all. That's great. So if I, if I have sort of very little database experience, say maybe I only ever work on the front end and I, I'm, I'm used to just calling my APIs to get my data in and out, that's what I can do with Fauna, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, why should you have to have, you know, why should you have to be a DevOps engineer to build an app? Yeah. It sounds a little bit more like a backend as a service to me then than a database. It is a backend as a service, but you know the the capabilities we offer are the traditional database semantics. We're not you know we're not adding on you know image storage and a user model and like push notifications and all this stuff you know with some other database buried at the heart of it that then leaks through to the the, the power of the the overall API. It's really about making that, you know, that operational or OLTP database platform a ubiquitous global service as opposed to becoming like um like an all-in-one vertical stack, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're you're just focused on the data transactions and things like that as opposed to, yeah, providing uh, authentication and you know, all the other services that tend to come along with some of the other options out there. Yeah, yeah. And usually, you know, those things, they add those services partly to obscure weaknesses in the core data platform. Because Fauna was built ground up for this world. And we're not using some other database under the hood. So is Fauna, would it be a replacement to Firebase Firestore? Is that the piece of the, you know, I think of backends as a service? Yeah, Firestore, fire the database. Or, I mean, typically we see DynamoDB or, or, right. or Firestore in terms of people's selections. Okay, so Fauna would be a replacement or an alternative to that. Yeah, and it, it, we're, we're also, we're the only alternative which is independent of one of those proprietary cloud stacks too. So, you know, they, they like if you use Firestore, you're expected to integrate with the rest of Firebase and you sort of pay a tax if you don't. And the same for DynamoDB and the Amazon ecosystem. 
So how do I use it? How do I get it going? If I've got an app and I know I want to use a database, uh, say I'm building something serverless, um, what, what do I need to do to get going with, with Fauna? You don't need to do much. If you're using it directly, you can, I mean, you can sign up for a cloud account for free. We have free forever developer plans. We also have a Docker image you can use to develop locally. So you can do everything on your workstation. Then our, our goal is to let you stay in development for free until you're ready to go to production. And then when you do, you know, if your usage grows, then you start to pay for it. You can also you can also use one of the the hosting providers in the space we integrate with, like Netlify, who is an add-on for Fauna that can help get you going a little little easier if you're already part of that world. But at the end of the day, you get a JavaScript driver that you can integrate with whatever your your front end framework is and start reading and writing data directly from the client or directly from a, a compute lambda or wherever you please. Do I get some kind of a, like a web console where I can sort of define what I want my database to look like or anything like that? Or do I literally just do it all from my IDE and, and just hit these APIs? We have a CLI. We have a web dashboard on fauna.com, which walks you through getting set up and lets you explore your data in the usual way, manage your databases within within your cluster. And we also have some integrations now, like a new one with VS Code that help you get going quicker in a specific development environment. Mm, great, great stuff. Sounds good. And uh, I'm assuming then that there's some way to authenticate against it as well. So if I'm writing a spa with Angular or... You know, I'm using Angular Elements and I want to embed some kind of credentials into it so that it can push or pull data from it, that there's a way to do that too. There, there is, and this is a big point of investment for us right now. It takes a while to build a database and Fauna's authentication model kind of came online before the state of the art with JWTs was totally laid down. So right now what a lot of people do is they'll use a Lambda to integrate with you know a more state-of-the-art authentication model or integrate with Auth0 or something to, to manage their identity and issue Fauna tokens, which can then be proxied or delivered directly to the client. That's kind of the, the best practice right now. We're working on making it more native and making it possible for you to do it without even using that Lambda tier at all. So I may, I may wind up, at least for now, managing the access control through some other service that, that already has it. Fauna has native attribute-based access control. It is secure out of the box, and you can talk to it directly from the client. But the integration in like the Angular and React ecosystem isn't quite as pure as it needs to be, in my opinion. So that's what we're investing in right now. So, um, you know, looking at Fauna earlier, I noticed that you know, you guys kind of distribute it geographically. Um, you mentioned like it's a global database. Do you guys find that it actually really helps increase speed by having like the different like I know CDNs are important for like images because everyone loads images all the time but do you find that the latency is a big deal when it comes to you know storing the data in the API or um, is that one of the main big things that you guys focus on or is that just an added benefit to all the other things you focus on it, it is a big deal and I think like the, the core of this in my opinion, like we're undergoing a major transition in the development stack and in development methodology overall. And part of the, the, like the heart of that is really the move to direct access to the data tier from globally distributed clients. When those clients are globally distributed, if your data tier like lives in US East 1 in Virginia, 
And everyone has to talk to it for everything all the time and has to talk to it, you know, multiple times in one request. Then you end up with a very poor or, you know, impossibly bad user experience. So we're shifting from, you know, the full stack world where there's some web server adjacent to the database that doesn't really care about latency because everyone is already forced to wander around the world to find that web server to a, a you know global client server world where latency at the edge is absolutely critical. It also means consistent, consistency at the edge is critical too, because if it matters which data center you talk to, then you no longer get that performant guarantee that you're looking for. Very so cool. what, is your, what does your API look like then to access the data? Is it GraphQL? Is it REST? Is it remote procedure calls? What are we looking at here? It's it's GraphQL, so it's it's you know, HTTP secure interface. You can use GraphQL for the schema definition and defining your resolvers. And then for the actual resolver logic, you use our own query language, a mutation language called FQL, which is a lot like Link, but still you know all over HTTP all stateless queries, each of which carry an access token with them, all designed for a web-based model. Are you all familiar with Link from the C-sharp world? There was an episode done about it on adventuresin.net. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but I'm not super familiar with it. I mean, it's basically a way to write functional relational patterns over a data set. So you can essentially do anything in FQL that you can do in, in SQL but it's, it has a more functional programming paradigm wrapped around it. So can I communicate with Fauna using like a RESTful API? Do I need to be using GraphQL in order to talk to the database? There, there is no REST API per se. There's JSON, HTTP, which can be GraphQL or can be FQL. But we don't support you know, REST verbs and, and individual record endpoints. Normally, you'll grab a driver for your language, like the JavaScript phone driver. We have drivers for many other languages as well, and that will intermediate your access anyway, so you don't really have to worry about it. Cool. That's cool. I mean, I personally, I've, I've actually just not gone anywhere near GraphQL yet. So uh, <laughs> my first thought was, ah, is this something I'm not actually going to be able to use or because I don't know how to do it? Or, but it, it sounds like there's ways around for me, you know, as a... Any, any reason for not... Chasing GraphQL? Uh, uh, you know, it's mostly that I haven't encountered it in my day job. And my day job is where I do most of my coding. So, yeah, it's, it's one of these, it's sort of on my list of things that, oh, yeah, I'd like to check this out at some point when I get some time, you know? That, that, that makes sense. I mean, we believe GraphQL is going to be just as big as SQL long term. And we joined the GraphQL board and um, are invested in the community a lot. But yeah, I think the you know kind of came of age in you know a certain class of companies like late stage startups that are trying to integrate existing databases with with the modern front end world. And if if you're not that, it hasn't quite reached you know it has it hasn't quite reached your I don't know sphere of influence. I don't know what to call it. Right? Yeah, it's it's entirely possible. I mean, uh, I would like to get at least you know familiar with it just so that. If I find myself in a situation where I'm walking into a company where they're like, ah, everything's GraphQL, like, ah, okay, good. I need to learn that very quickly then. I'll move it up my to-do list. I feel pressured now. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I've I've done a bit with GraphQL. Um, I'll tell you that uh, writing GraphQL is much more fun on the front end than writing the resolvers on the back end. But uh, yeah, that said, I mean, it, it's a cool technology. And, you know, hopefully we just find easier ways to write it for the back end. And so, uh, you know, that's why something like Fauna appeals to me just from that standpoint. Because if I'm using something that's already out there that has the resolvers and everything else kind of set up or they have an easy way to create them for my database, then that that is really something that I can get behind because, yeah, writing my own resolvers. And I was doing it in Ruby on Rails. It, yeah. it, it was somewhat painful. Yeah, you're back in a world of you know, containers and hosted services and stuff trying to figure out you know, where your business logic is supposed to live. I think too, like, I mean, that's one of the things that makes Fauna such a good fit with, with the JavaScript ecosystem overall. Because like React and Angular and Vue and, and those things, you know, they're kind of, they kind of assume that you have some giant backend engineering team building APIs for you to consume in your product. And that's not actually the case. Like you need hosted services, which let you define the API without having to, to actually implement and operate some infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, my issue really, what it boiled down to was that writing the resolvers wasn't that hard, but how do I put it? Rails gives you really nice code generators for uh, controllers and things like that, you know, which are kind of analogous to the resolvers. And there's not a good generator for, you know, sort of the CRUD level operations. And so, yeah, I wind up having to go and define, okay, this is how you get the data you want. And then here's how you get or here's how you, you know, do the different kinds of uh, mutations that you want. I mean, the nice thing is, is that you can create mutations however you want. So you could have a set password mutation and an update mutation, right? And you can manage those differently. But you have to write them all yourself. And there's a lot of ceremony that goes into that. And so it, it, it was kind of mind-numbing work because it's like, oh, I just have to do this over again. Yeah, that... that... That matches our experience with with Fauna. If you upload a GraphQL schema, you get the default you get the default mutation patterns out of the box, and you get to you know extend your business logic with yeah with FQL in in custom results. That would be nice because yeah, then all of your basic expected CRUD operations are already done for you, and then yeah, it's like okay, I've got this special case where you know I only want to update these specific things in these specific ways and you can set those restraints or constraints sorry on that um, mutation query in your resolver just on its own and you've just got those where you need them right and then yeah if you have you know logic that you can't squeeze into the database then you can grab some serverless compute thing right yeah i was going to ask is it is it something you can use in conjunction with uh, like a serverless function solution i assume yeah it shares the same security model as direct access from the front end, but you can also issue more privileged keys for, for backend secure components to interact with it, like a Lambda or something. You can use drivers for other languages. Ultimately, you're interacting with the same database with the same data. So you can have an Angular app, which is, which is hitting phone directly, but still have like a Go microservice and a Lambda, which is also interacting with phone and either, you know, Triggered behind the scenes or triggered from a front end call or what have you to do something extra special. Is there a way to trigger it from like changes in the Fauna DB, something along those lines? Or 
Not yet. We're working on we're working on webhooks and and streaming. That's one of the things where you know that's one of the things where Firebase stands out the streaming capability. And we're working on our own streaming because it, it's an important need for the ecosystem. But right now you can pull on change feeds because Fauna's data model is temporal, but it's a little trickier to get it to real time latency. So once we have once we have web hooks, hooks and change feeds, um, we used to call web hooks, hooks triggers back in the back in the nineties, and everything old is new again. Then you'll be able to run you know externalized business logic based on filters over the changing data. Have you heard of Atwood's law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript, and that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com. One thing that I'm wondering is, I mean, how far can you push this model? Just to give you an example, like could I run an analytics engine on it, or would that cost prohibitive or performance, you know, would degrade because I'm pushing a ton of data in or things like that? Or are we looking at some of the more traditional setups where, you know, you might be running, you know, something else on top of it that, you know, takes data in and out and just kind of has the sort of general crud life cycle that you expect out of a, 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 an app where people are just logging in and changing data as they need to. I mean, Fauna, Fauna is designed to scale to Twitter scale, but it is an operational database. It's not a data warehouse. So you can get, you know, similar to using MySQL or Postgres or something back in the day, you can get pretty far with, you know, adding additional capability and building additional product features in your app around that core interaction model and with the additional you know, query functionality Fauna provides. But ultimately, if you're a super high velocity you know, if you have a super high velocity analytics workload, you would want to use the, the the change feeds from the, you know, the 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 record history to integrate with a data warehouse. Gotcha. I mean, you can sort of you can sort of say we're kind of retreading MySQL's history, but for the new the new global front end oriented web, like the core transactions have to be great, and then you need additional capability all around that so you can have a general purpose platform. And if your app you know, scales beyond that general purpose capability, then it totally makes sense to get some special purpose piece of infrastructure to do it instead. So, you know, you guys call it serverless. Um, and I mean, obviously it's on servers somewhere. Well, I'll be that guy. But there's nothing you ever have to do. I'm assuming you're saying that because there's nothing you ever have to do to like increase capacity. Like, do I ever hit a limit and say, "Hey, now I have to like give you authorization to go over that limit," or like, are there anything like that in place, or is it just you keep hitting it and it keeps growing? So, five, yeah, we are. We, we we call it no ops. You know, we want to. We want you to define your your API and the location of your infrastructure, but never have to operate it, never have to scale it, unless you know you specifically desire to have more control or transparency. So the, the, the basic experience is that every phone and database is globally replicated and globally available. You, you pay for nothing unless you're, you're actively using it at high volume. When you do, you can burst and scale down as, as, as high as you need because all the provisioning is fully dynamic and there's no latency cost or you know, 
sharding time when your workload is changing. You just get the capacity you need instantaneously. But then, you know, as as your product matures, you may want to limit it to different geographies or different clouds and, and that kind of thing. And we have a, a virtual private serverless product in the works, which lets us give you that experience without being commingled with other tenants and in the in the cloud infrastructure that you need for your own goals. Cool. Yeah, I was looking at the pricing. It's it's pretty awesome. You guys make it scarily tempting to to try because it's like, hey, it, it's free up to a seems like a decent you know allotment. So I'm like, I was looking at it and I was like, is this really free? So I started typing in numbers into your guys like little calculator and I'm like, yeah, it still says free when I do that and then like change these numbers. And so uh, it's interesting, very interesting. Yeah, that's we we can only do that because of Fauna's architecture. Fauna's multi-tenancy is built into the database kernel. It's kind of like a process scheduler and an operating system. It's not provision containers or VMs or something on a per-customer basis. So we don't have to pay for idle capacity, and, and neither do you as an end user, is, the, is the, the conclusion of this model. And no one else can do that, and that's why you know, you'll get other cloud databases. Like, they'll give you a 30-day trial in like one region if your email address looks legit. But that's not enough to like build an app. You know, that's not, not enough to make it part of your development life cycle and really, really get comfortable with it and build something of value before you're, you're asked to pay for it. Is there any um, cold start type of thing? Or I guess you're saying no? No, there's not. Okay, that's good. And that's down to, again, not being multi-tenant, blah, 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 right? It's all built into the kernel. And so it's just another query to a system that's already up and running and warm. Yeah, it's, it's just another query that gets you know, jitted and executed like everything else. And then when your workload goes away, you know, those resources are available for others. And there's, there's dynamic isolation to make sure that you know, one super bursty user isn't starving others or one long one long running query you know will get will get preempted and parked so that other queries can keep operating with expected latency that kind of thing so what's coming next in fauna so the 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 streaming and the locality control features are next mm-hmm. the improvements to auth are shortly after that those are all things we're very excited about because they'll you know they'll make the experience better and you know, let us address more specific workloads, compliance needs, that kind of thing. Right. Do you have a timeline on those? or? Yeah, they're coming in the next couple quarters. Okay. So and on, on, you know, on database development timescale, that means tomorrow. <laughs> 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 Databases are hard. Yeah. What all are you using right now? Like if you're building a, a fully dynamic, you know, Consumery app from a front end mindset. You know what, what? What would be your stack choices and your your database choices? So I've looked at using um, Amazon's. I don't remember what it's called now, but basically their um, oh Dynamo DB, I think, and a couple other MySQL things. But it always seems like I either had to like wait for cold starts or like the costs add up very quickly. So those are the two biggest things I've run into personally um, when looking at that. Um, So I've typically ended up just getting like like an EC2 instance and throwing a database on it, which is an annoying overhead. So yeah, this has definitely been interesting with, feels like a better pricing model, at least, you know, getting into it. I mean, I don't know. If you get a big 
contingency going, then you probably have the money to to support the costs. Um, but it seems you know affordable in the intro and the no cold start is huge. Yeah, the the cold cold starts are artifact of people trying to you know take these provision models and scale them down. It becomes like how fast can I provision the tiniest little square of capacity because you can't do anything until you provision something. So you you get these step functions as you scale up and down and shards are split and merged and like VMs are provisioned and decommissioned and stuff and at the end of the day like we we see you know Firebase is a little more purely multi-tenant, um, but lacks basic database features like transactions and that kind of thing. Dynamo is, is, is less pure, a little more flexible, but you know, suffers from that kind of that, that legacy provisioning mindset where the, you know, the operational concerns pollute the interface that you're, you as a developer are trying to work with. And you end up, you know, whether you have to do it in the AWS console or on the shell or on a administrating some server, operating some other intermediate service like Gateway or something. Like at the end of the day, you're just doing all this ops work, which isn't useful for building your product. From what I understand, you know, why you guys are able to be different, and I want to see if this is correct. Basically, you're saying, you know, a lot of the other solutions are taking existing solutions and then trying to separate them and make them smaller. And you guys kind of started at the bottom and said, okay, if we need something that can do this, what do we need as a base? And then kind of built up from there. Does that sound accurate? Or how are you guys so different? Yeah, that is accurate. I mean, fundamentally, these other systems are all incremental improvements over the the primary secondary replication model of the RDBMS. And they've, you know, they've scaled that up to data center scale and they've they've tried to cram latency down. And when they can't cram latency down, they give you the ability to trade off, you know, consistency for for latency and durability for throughput like Mongo and that kind of thing. But it's it's not a total solution to the problem. It's just a bunch more like knobs and levers you can start turning to try to overfit your infrastructure to your workload. And our experience at Twitter was one of you know, building and operating a global developer-facing API. And the idea that you would you would like provision some at the time some physical machines so that some dev could interact with the Twitter data set was crazy. APIs were new and weird, but like that would have been even newer and weirder um, and obviously wouldn't have worked. So we were always dealing with a global multi-tenant developer user base interacting with a shared service. And we had to add all kinds of capability around rate limiting and isolation and security to make that work. But it did work and it was great. And the systems ran at like 100% utilization for years. So they were vastly more efficient than your typical database you know, installation in a managed world. And we were kind of surprised when we started exploring the market when we were you know, beginning to work on, on turning Fauna into a product company that people didn't use their hardware. It seemed crazy to us. One, one thing I'm curious about is anyone is I mean it sounds like you just got a totally unique way of looking at, at databases. Is, is anyone copying you yet? Or do you have any major competition? We we really don't. Like no one else has ever built a system like this before. There's no particular reason to expect anyone else will. You know, we've we've published a lot of what we're doing, um, but 
part of the reasons nobody else has done it is because it's it's hard to understand and it's hard to build. And I think a, a, like a core part of the challenge is that like pe- people using a new stack, pushing the state of the art in in app and product development are typically new developers. They're not people with decades of distributed systems experience. But people who do have that experience, you know, they're not using Angular, they're not using React. Like they're using older tools in an environment which is conformed around those tools and they have expectations and assumptions about how those tools should work. And like at the end of the day, we're all building dev tools for ourselves. So that's why, you know, there's lots of open source Postgres clones, but there's only one fauna. Is is interesting because you know when I when I come to look at databases, I like I literally don't know which one to choose because this like if I want to go NoSQL, cool, okay, I made that decision. Okay, well I've now got a hundred different database solutions to choose from that they appear to all do the same thing, right? So you know, obviously everyone's going down that route. I was just um I'm I guess I'm I am surprised and not surprised to a certain extent that that you don't have sort of the same same issue, but maybe, as you say, we're constantly pushing the frontiers here. Maybe as you get more and more people sort of down that way, you, you'll, you'll, somebody will go, oh, maybe this fauna thing's quite good. Maybe we should try and get in on that action. I don't know. I mean, um, um, eventually, yes. You know, there's like a lot of people have tried to copy Mongo or improve in, in some way. But the, the thing that's most important for a developer selecting a database is, is its productivity, and that means how well it fits their stack. And if someone is coming in with something, like you're like you're saying, like I made a decision to go NoSQL. Well, people don't really decide that way. They make a decision to build an app, and they have you know a framework and a, a, a language and a set of tools which they're familiar with and comfortable with. And one of them is a database, part of that integrated ecosystem. And that's why we've put a lot of work into integrating with the open serverless ecosystem like Netlify, Zite, Gatsby, Cloudflare, Prisma, Flyo, all those guys, you know, everyone who's building this front-end oriented world together to make sure that we can deliver that productivity benefit and you're not sitting there demoralized because you have to pick a NoSQL and you have no ability to do so and no no context to evaluate it and then you have no tools to, to work with it and no guidance for how to integrate it with the rest of your stack. I mean, I think the biggest thing that, you know, the, the biggest boost in Postgres popularity was, was, was Rails. And then once Oracle acquired MySQL and people didn't like Oracle, you know, that the benefit of that stack all flowed to Postgres. It wasn't really people sitting down saying Postgres is the best. To be clear, Fauna is the best. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. Um, <laughs> What what is the use case then? Like what what are people building with it? Do you, do you have some examples? Yeah, yeah, they're building they're building everything. Like we have a ton of SaaS products being built on Fauna. We have a lot of consumer internet products. Like like there's a really cool. So like this is not a world I'm familiar with, but um, it seems cool. Like a, a business processing a business process modeling tool called ShiftX, which is built on Fauna. Let's people sort of lay out how their business works on like a, like a human scale, like what, how do orders flow through? How do people interact with each other? How does how does work get done? You know, and it's not like a it's not a tech thing at all. It's like a you know kind of an enterprisey thing, but all built in a serverless way on Fauna. There's people building consumer music apps 
like there's one called Squirb that I like a lot, which is kind of like a Patreon for for artists um, with a mobile app built on Fauna. We also have larger adopters like NVIDIA and, and Nextdoor.com, which have built key consumer, you know, key parts of their consumer products on, on Fauna. Because, you know, at the end of the day, they're shipping to a global audience and share the same needs and, and same development patterns as, as you all. So what about with uh, TypeScript? Is there like a TypeScript? Can we pull in types for FaunaDB with GraphQL or? Not directly. I don't think we have direct TypeScript support in our JS driver. It's certainly something we've talked about. What's your opinion on TypeScript overall? Well, um, within Angular, it's kind of the canonical way to do things. So, yeah, right. In in Angular minus JS, right? The yeah. Angular two is all TypeScript based. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, I pretty much use TypeScript for everything. Um, even if I just do a personal project that isn't Angular, like TypeScript. So definitely any kind of TypeScript support, especially with you know database entities and stuff like that, that would be awesome. Yeah, Vue 3 is also adopting TypeScript and it is making serious inroads in the React community. When it comes to TypeScript, I am basically that meme that you see <laughs> of the TypeScript developer just yelling in the face of the JavaScript person. <laughs> so for front end, uh, I think TypeScript is more or less taking over. I, 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 I agree with you. And I, I'm sure we'll get there soon enough. Do you find that, like, like, like this is a good question. Like if, you, if you're using a TypeScript-oriented framework or runtime or whatever you want to call it, and you have to pick up a pure JS client library to interact with something else. How much of an obstacle is that for you? It's just a developer friendliness type thing, right? Like you get all the different functions and, and the syntax highlighting right out of the gate. I think I pulled in something recently that didn't have it. And then I did a little search and found some open source project and, and I pulled that in and it made me happier. But it's not a it's not like I won't use a service if they don't have a typed interface between the two. Yeah, to, to build off of that, like if I have to use something that's JavaScript, I will typically like create a couple functions that integrate with that JavaScript and then they will define a TypeScript interface. That way I kind of, but it's kind of an overhead, like, all right, like I'd figure out what are the options here in JavaScript and then add those to my own interface so that then when I'm in the rest of my code, I'm like, okay, but um, yeah, so it doesn't keep me from it either, but it's definitely, um, you kind of have to step back and you're like, oh, this doesn't support TypeScript. Okay, let me think. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I'm looking, at the, I'm looking at the JavaScript driver right now. I actually am wrong. We do have typed extensions for TypeScript. So oh, there you go. I need, nice. to get my hands, I need to get my hands dirty and get up to speed on my own product. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the CEO, so you're probably fussing over other stuff too, so... Right, I'm just chiefly executing here. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anything else that you all want to dive into? How big are you as a company, just out of interest? We are about 40 people. Oh, okay. Oh, we, are, yeah. we are fully distributed. I'm in Boston. My co-founder's in the Bay Area, where I used to be. Most of the team is in the States, Brazil, or Europe. Okay, right, yeah, it's not, not, not a trivial number of people then. That's, that's, yeah, that's good. No, we're, 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 we're here for the long haul. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. Cool. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. 
Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. Well, I'm going to push this into picks. Who do we start with? Brooks, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I got a pick. Um, I was setting up some uh, sites and I used uh, forestry.io. And of course, I got myself into a corner with theme change or whatever. And their support was really helpful. Frank at the little chat window helped me out and showed me how I messed up. So that was uh, super helpful. So forestry.io is my pick. Way to go, Frank. Uh, we use forestry.io for devchat.tv as well. So Yeah, it's a, it's a cool product. Makes, yeah. makes things easier. Yeah, I'm pretty comfortable writing the markdown on devchat.tv. But what I found is that you know, I have some non-technical folks that are helping publish the shows and having a UI just makes it a lot easier. So, yeah, absolutely. And it's really easy to set up. So It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, Chris, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. Um, this weekend, I finally saw the latest Spider-Man film, Spider-Man Far From Home. I'm a big Spider-Man fan. Thought that film was pretty good. That's not actually my pick. Uh, because I saw that this weekend, I will continue my series of things that I like. It was but close to home for you, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was. It was yeah, it? A big, yeah. big, big battle in, uh, in London. It was good. No, the film was good. I enjoyed it. But um, it made me think of my, my, uh, my picks feature, things that I like that the internet says I shouldn't. Uh, and so for that, I'll pick uh, Spider-Man 3, the Sam Raimi one, uh, which is generally reviled by the internet. But I quite enjoyed it. It was fun. You know, I really liked that original Spider-Man trilogy. Tobey Maguire was a really good Spider-Man. Sam Raimi was a good director. There was a lot going on in that movie that maybe shouldn't have been there, but it wasn't a bad film. It was entertaining. That's my pick. Spider-Man 3. I'm not going to argue about with you about Tobey <laughs> Maguire. Eddie, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, my picks is actually, um, of all things, LinkedIn. I know LinkedIn gets a lot of you know, isn't like always the best thing and it has recruiters everywhere. But um, I've been having to do like a lot of personal hiring for the company. And like, it's nice to just be able to connect with people and reach out to them and stuff um, and try to have a more personal like side of things rather than just having recruiters going out and doing everything. And so like if LinkedIn didn't exist, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So that's been super fun to just meet people with different backgrounds and chat with them and stuff while I've been doing that. So I think it's super fun. Yeah, I use LinkedIn a lot because I'm looking for sponsors and guests and super handy that way. I'm going to throw some picks out. I think I've mentioned The Expanse for a couple of weeks in a row. Finally finished that series on uh, Amazon Prime. And it was good. Uh, season 4 was good. I've also been listening to a book on Audible. It's actually seven books. It's The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, they had an offer for... It was essentially just one credit, one of my Audible credits. And it has people like Kenneth Branagh and Patrick Stewart reading the different books. And so uh, really, really, really awesome. And yeah, I'm only what halfway through The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book chronologically. And Kenneth Branagh reads that one. And it is, it, it's awesome. He's a terrific narrator. And I'm really looking forward to getting to The Last Battle. That's the one that Patrick Stewart reads. Anyway, uh, I'm going to pick that. And that's I, specifically on Audible. I have to say, I applaud you going chronologically. It's, you know, it doesn't matter how people write things. You have to go things, through things chronologically. So good job. Well, that's the way that they have it on the recording. I didn't get to pick. 
But uh, yeah, I've read those books to my kids and they're terrific books on their own. So uh, Evan, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I think uh, I, will, I will pick the, the JWT auth model because that's something I'm digging into with the product team to understand how we can fit that ecosystem better like we talked about. But, but personally, I like home audio a lot. Um, I probably mentioned something similar in the last episode, but uh, I have a problem with my, my Emotiva amp now where there's some sort of frequency that causes it to go into protection mode. So I'm trying to debug that. And I like generally just messing around with physical hardware at home where I'm the only person, like I'm the end user and it doesn't matter what I do as long as, you know, I, I'm satisfied with the outcome. So I, I never became an electrical engineer because I couldn't quite get a handle on physical hardware. So I, I sort of channeled that energy into smart home, home audio, kind of crap like that. Um, so I'm trying to debug my amp right now and I'm enjoying that debugging process. Yeah, I'm getting a little tired of the physical debugging. I had to debug my washer because it wouldn't drain properly. I had to debug the my car because the belt was squealing and uh, my hands are still a little scraped up from both of those. But yeah. All right. Well, Evan, if people want to connect over Fauna or other stuff that you've done, where do they find you online? Twitter. Twitter is the best place. I'm at Evan at Twitter. And Fauna.com, F-A-U-N-A.com is our website. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah. Good to talk to everybody again. All right. Max out, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.